Hello, and welcome to the Elizabeth Bishop Podcast. My name is Nate Byer, and in this episode, I will be looking at a few Bishop poems and the biographical ties those poems have to her life. I'll also be exploring the ways in which the creation of art from life opens up new ways of seeing the world, as the artist, Bishop in this case, finds a third place between the inner private world of memory and emotion and the outer world of objective reality. Art, specifically Bishop's art, springs from the space where the self meets reality in the thin membrane between what we are and what the world is, a place that is neither subjective nor objective, but a mix of both. But enough about that right now. Let's start with one of her most interesting poems, Sestina. Sestina by Elizabeth Bishop. September rain falls on the house. In the failing light, the old grandmother sits in the kitchen with the child beside the little marble stove, reading the jokes from the almanac, laughing and talking to hide her tears. She thinks that her equinoctial tears and the rain that beats on the roof of the house were both foretold by the almanac, but only known to a grandmother. The iron kettle sings on the stove. She cuts some bread and says to the child, it's time for tea now. But the child is watching the tea kettle's small, hard tears dance like mad on the hot, black stove, the way the rain must dance on the house. Tidying up, the old grandmother hangs up the clever almanac. On its string, bird-like, the almanac hovers half open above the child, hovers above the old grandmother and her teacup full of dark brown tears. She shivers and says she thinks the house feels chilly and puts more wood on the stove. It was to be, says the marble stove. I know what I know, says the almanac. With crayons, the child draws a rigid house and a winding pathway. And the child puts in a man with buttons like tears and shows it proudly to grandmother. But secretly, while the grandmother busies herself about the stove, the little moons fall down like tears from between the pages of the almanac into the flower bed the child has carefully placed in the front of the house. Time to plant tears, says the almanac. The grandmother sings to the marvelous stove, and the child draws another inscrutable house. Ugh, that poem. I can hardly get through it without tearing up myself. You may have noticed it repeats the word tears. In fact, it repeats several words. It's the form of the poem, which is a sestina, which means that it repeats the end word of each line of the six-line poem five times through five stanzas in different order each time. It's a prescribed order, which you could probably Google and look up if you're interested. And then that last stanza, that last three-line stanza that you heard, combines all those words in what is supposed to be a kind of wrap-up of the poem. In a sense, it's like a thought experiment. How can you take these same six words and the ideas represented by these words, different versions of these words, different appearances of these words, and make them into one complete poem that has some kind of meaning that's not nonsense, nor absurd, nor cliched, nor boring? It's a big task. It's easy to do badly. Now, the Bishop poem is genius, which I'll get to. 
but let's start with the fact that it's about a grandmother and a granddaughter. Now, if you've read any poetry at all, or even a few Hallmark cards, you can imagine that this topic could go wrong in about a million ways. Clichés about kindly grandmothers dispensing kernels of homespun wisdom to wide-eyed granddaughters, cookie baking, quilting, whatever. And the grandmother does some of this kind of stuff. She makes tea for the child, she cuts bread, she reads some jokes. But there's this undercurrent, this thread of tears that runs through the poem, sometimes hidden, sometimes planted, and moves it away from the serpy and sentimental. The grandmother is talking and laughing to hide her tears. That's the kind of family I know. The talk, the laughter is directed at hiding sorrow, not disclosing it, not wanting to confess or wallow in what, what might be wrong or missing. In this case, what's missing, obviously, is parents. This poem was published by Bishop during her years in Brazil. She spent almost two decades there in the 1950s and 60s with her lover, Lada de Macedo Suarez. The distance that Brazil allowed her physically and the support of finding the woman that, without too much romantic hyperbole, could be called the love of her life, allowed Bishop the ability to reflect on her early life. Questions of Travel, the book in, that Sestina is included in, also contains a short story called In the Village, which we'll discuss later. Sestina and In the Village are kind of companion pieces. They both deal with the absence of Bishop's mother, Gertrude. Her father died of Bright's disease, a kidney disorder, when she was about eight months old. From the available information, it seems that Gertrude, her mother, never recovered from her husband's death. It's hard to do diagnoses historically, but she seems to have suffered from an extreme form of complicated grief, which descended into suicidal ideation, suicidal thoughts, and at least one known attempt. According to Thomas Travisano's recent Bishop biography, Love Unknown, The Life and Worlds of Elizabeth Bishop, her mother's complicated grief may have opened a Pandora's box of mental illness, which it grew to include paranoia, suicidality, and religious mania. When Elizabeth was six, her mother was institutionalized. Because of the stigma of mental illness at the time, which does continue to some degree today, no one ever spoke to Bishop at the time or later about her mother's hospitalization. Just take a second and think about that. You're six years old. You know something's wrong with mom. Her behavior's not been okay. But even with all that, one day she's there in whatever way she's capable of being there, and the next day she's gone, and gone forever. Bishop never sees her mother again. And nobody ever stops to say, hey, this is what happened. They don't even seem to make up a convenient lie. Mommy's in the hospital, she'll, she's getting better, she's sick, you know, she'll be back. Nobody really ever addresses it. So that's what we are approaching in this scene that we're given in Sestina. The grandmother and the granddaughter after this thing has happened. Emily Dickinson wrote, 
after great pain, a formal feeling comes. Well, this is the formal feeling moment. This is the moment where we're trying to put the world back together after something terrible has happened. The tears are there. They're literally running through the poem, but they're also not there. They're expressed and they're not expressed. They're infusing everything and everything is also what it is. We're in this zone that I want to talk about and that Bishop often writes from that is the place in which the self, the persona of the poem, if you will, meets reality. Neither one is subsumed by the other, and that's part of the genius of this poem. The selfhood, even the childhood of the girl in the poem, suffuses what we see as a reader, the picture that she draws, the house, the tea. Everything is sort of childlike, but at the same time, this is not a poem for children. It's got a beautiful sort of elegiac quality to it. Talking about this moment with these two people where there is this great pain under the surface that's not fully recognized. And it's so beautifully rendered that I just, that's what brings the tears to my eyes when I read it or when I hear it. But how does all this work? How do you take the stuff of trauma, of life, whether it's traumatic or not, frankly, and turn it into art. And what's the value of art that comes from life? What's that transaction all about? I reached out to a few people to talk about this. The first one, Elizabeth Kelly, is an expressive therapist here in the Boston area. And I talked to her about what she does with her clients who range in age from teenagers to adults. She's worked with folks in correctional institutions as well as professionals in the midst of life. What value do they get from art? And how does that art that they produce help them to understand their lives better? There's an inner voice in all of us that deserves to be heard and is also our guide in our own healing process, sort of like we're our own best healers. And that's kind of how I look at expressive therapies as it's like a liberation tool to help people kind of find who they really are and find their voice. The arts are a way or a tool to create a dialogue with trauma and eventually release trauma. It also helps to deal with the different fragmentations, brings them together in an integration process. So that sounds good, the way that art, creating art for someone who's gone through things in life that are difficult, can sort of knit them together into a pattern and a fabric that makes it all sort of cohere and easier to deal with and easier to understand and easier to see as a part of your life perhaps, but not your whole life, which is definitely good if you've experienced trauma. But what about somebody who's actually looking just to make art, not necessarily for therapeutic purposes, but just to create something that's worthy of putting out there as a piece of art? I talked to another person. Shaul Rick Chason is a Boston area playwright. 
who often uses his difficult past, uh, particularly from childhood, as a source material for the writing he produces. When I was 18, my alcoholic mother made some lies to a, uh, a doctor and I was basically sectioned in a mental hospital against my will for a week. It was a very traumatic experience and in doing this exercise, in just writing a very non-judgmental, objective account, bit by bit, sentence by sentence, just very accurately and non-judgmentally of what happened, I found it to be both therapeutic and uh, definitely informed you know, a lot of creative writing I've done since then. Another person I talked to is J.D. Scrimger. J.D. is a poet and memoirist who teaches at Salem State University in Salem, Massachusetts. I think actually for me, and I think for a lot of writers, even if you are going to end up writing about your own life, you are drawn to certain subjects and then you realize that your life is reflected in those subjects. I think it's really interesting what J.D. is saying here. What he's saying is that when writing about your own life, sometimes your own life is not the subject matter that you were first drawn to. That in fact it's this dialogue between what am I drawn to in the world, out there to write about, and what has my past been? What are the things I've gone to in life? And again, he's speaking to a kind of dialogue between reality outside of the self and what you've been through as an individual person in this world, aka your life. And that's a subject that I'm going to continue to discuss in the second part of this podcast. Okay, I'm going to say a name. It's not a name that most of you will like very much, but I'm going to say it. Freud. That's right, Sigmund Freud. Freud got many things wrong. I am not going to debate penis envy or advocate for many of his theories or positions. However, one thing that I think is true is that all of us that achieve even chronological maturity, to say nothing of emotional maturity, have experienced trauma, maybe small t trauma. We grow up, get made fun of, change something about ourselves, we have to leave home for school, for kindergarten. It's a little traumatic. Something happens, we get lost on the way home, we get on the wrong bus, we're there for hours. There's trauma involved. Maybe not separation from a parent due to illness or death. Maybe not abuse, physical or otherwise, but loss. That's a part of life for all of us from an early age. Unlike most of us, Bishop went on to become one of the greatest American poets of the 20th century. How she became that poet, what is great about her poetry, we'll touch on that. But ultimately, a full exploration of, of that is not only a separate podcast, but a suitable subject for a PhD dissertation. I mean, why is Mozart Mozart? Why is Faulkner Faulkner? In some sense, they are just inexplicable, the result of talent and training and practice, and diligent, and hard work, yes, but also alive with the breath of life, with the intimation of something greater than the parts. But what I want to explore is how she survived as an artist at all, how she used her past, what she wrote, and what she chose not to write to understand and ultimately transcend the trauma of her early life. Now, 
Sestina was a poem that was published in her collection, Questions of Travel, in this, specifically in the section entitled Elsewhere. The earlier section, Questions of Travel Brazil, was non-surprisingly poems about and set in Brazil. There is a short story that she wrote that's included in the Elsewhere section, and it covers the same ground as Sestina does, which is the disappearance of Bishop's mother from her life. Let me read to you just the opening of this. In the Village by Elizabeth Bishop. A scream, the echo of a scream, hangs over that Nova Scotian village. No one hears it. It hangs there forever, a slight stain in those pure blue skies, skies that travelers compare to those of Switzerland. Too dark, too blue, so that they seem to keep on darkening a little more on around the horizon. Or is it around the rims of the eyes, the color of the clouds, a bloom on the elm trees, the violet on the field of oats, something darkening over the woods and waters as well as the sky. The scream hangs like that, unheard, in memory, in the past, in the present, and those years between. It was not even loud to begin with, perhaps, it just came there to live forever, not loud, just alive forever. Its pitch would be the pitch of my village. Flick the lightning rod on the top of the church steeple with your fingernail and you will hear it. So that's the opening paragraph of In the Village. You pretty quickly get the sense that what she's really talking about, knowing just a little bit of that I've discussed about her past, this is about her mother. The scream is, if not from her mother, it's certainly the repressed scream, perhaps, of a young Elizabeth Bishop suddenly having her mother gone, a scream that she could neither utter nor anyone else could hear, which is the frustrating thing about it. It must have been the maddening thing about it not only to have it happen, but then it, to have it never discussed. No one ever said, Elizabeth, how do you feel about your mother being gone? Because you couldn't talk about your mother being gone, because inevitably would lead to questions of what happened, and that's a taboo subject because of the mental health. Bishop goes on to write about loss again. A few years after she's written Sestina, she publishes her most famous poem called One Art. The art of losing isn't hard to master. So many things seem filled with the intent to be lost, that their loss is no disaster. Lose something every day, except the fluster of lost door keys, the hour badly spent. The art of losing isn't hard to master. Then practice losing farther, losing faster. Places and names, and where it was you meant to travel. None of these will bring disaster. I lost my mother's watch, and look, my last, or next to last, of three loved houses went. The art of losing isn't hard to master. I lost two cities, lovely ones, and vaster. Some realms I owned, two rivers, a continent. I missed them, but it wasn't a disaster. Even losing you, the joking voice, the gesture I love, I shan't have lied. It's evident the art of losing's not hard to master, though it may look like, write it, like disaster. 
I was thinking about this poem in relation to loss the other day, and it pissed me off. How can you say losing is not a disaster? I mean, to take Bishop's own life, not only did she lose her father at a young age, subsequent to that, a few years later, her mother essentially disappears while still in life, but disappears, never to return, never to be spoken of. Not only that, within a few months of her mother's death, Bishop's other grandparents, the grandparents that were well off, her father's parents who lived in Worcester, Massachusetts, they came and collected Bishop, said thank you very much to her Nova Scotian grandparents, but you guys don't have much money, we'll take her down to Massachusetts, we have money, we can provide for her. This girl that they probably didn't know that much or that well, um, and as it turns out, they didn't really have a big clue about what to do with a young person. They didn't particularly like having her around, and so not only was she taken away with that from that set of grandparents with whom she had lived and with whom she had a, a very friendly and essentially good relationship with, despite what had happened with her mother, she's now in a new household, yes, a larger, you know, more moneyed household, but without a lot of love and support eventually shuttled to live with other relatives, her mother's sister and, and her mother's sister's husband. Now, guess what? It turns out the husband of her sister, her uncle, uh, was abusive. He was abusive physically, and he potentially was also abuse, abusive sexually in some ways. So Bishop sustains all these losses during the time when people are most vulnerable to loss, in those early years of life. She sustains all of these losses, and yet here she is, you know, probably 50 years later, writing, losing's not a disaster. What? How can that not be a disaster? And then it hit me. It's not a disaster because you just keep on living. You think these things will kill you. You think these losses will kill you and take from you everything you have to give. But the reality is life goes on. Now that can be comforting or that can be horrifying in the unbearable lightness of being way. You know, in that way that life, despite everything, despite every trauma, every tragedy, every triumph, Every catastrophe just continues to go on and on and on in your own life. When that comes to an end, the rest of the world is going to keep on going. So then what does any of it mean? What does any of it mean? Well, Bishop says in her poem, it may look like, write it like disaster. Now, if you read that, I think, as an admonishment to the reader that, hey, you should start journaling about the things that happen. I think actually it's better viewed as an admonishment to the writer of the poem, to Bishop herself, to say, you need to write this stuff because, of course, she was a famously slow writer. She might take years or in some cases even decades 
to produce a finished poem from a first draft. So not only was she slow in getting to the, perhaps getting to the task of writing or revising, but there's a sense in which what writing can do for us and what writing does for a writer, I think, is that writing creates a meaning and writing creates an identity. I think for people who are writers, whether they're of the caliber of Elizabeth Bishop or not, writing has the function of interrogating identity, of allowing us to understand who we are and to look at our own experience and our own experience infused with reality, whatever reality we perceive. And of course, Bishop was an incredible perceiver of reality. I mean, she was known for her entire, essentially her entire career as someone who had a very detailed eye, who could really break down what the world held up to her in a very detailed and precise way. Precision was really one of the things that she said that she valued in poetry and what she created in her own poetry. The precision of the image, the precision of the language. And this is not random. This is not unrelated to the fact of trauma. Because if you see in some of these bishop poems, what she is creating is an outside world in which to meet both herself as a writer and to let the reader in. Now, there's nothing wrong with confessional poetry. Obviously, there are great confessional poets, Sylvia Plath being the most notable name. Confessional literature, you know, certainly goes back to Augustine. Perhaps further than that, I don't know. But there's a value in saying, this is what happened to me. This is what I felt about it. This is how it all rolled out. But Bishop does not let herself go there. And I think there is an act of self-preservation in that. I think there is an act of self-creation in that. For example, in The Fish, an earlier poem, she describes this huge fish that the eye of the poem, at least, we'll call it Bishop for sake of argument, that Bishop has caught and she writes of the fish, Here and there his brown skin hung in strips, like ancient wallpaper, and its pattern of darker brown was like wallpaper, shapes like full-blown roses, stained and lost through age. He was speckled with barnacles, fine rosettes of lime, and infested with tiny white sea lice and underneath two or three rags of green weed hanging down while his gills were breathing in the terrible oxygen, the frightening gills fresh and crisp with blood. I mean, that is a very specific, unsentimental description of this ancient fish hauled out of the water and held up over the boat, or beside the boat, I guess, you can see what that fish looks like. And you can also see the, the hardness of that fish's life at the, at the very end of what must have been quite a long life, 
the sea lice. You know, it's not a pretty picture of Ulfans playing in the sunset. And what that does for her is that allows her to create a space where the reader enters the poem. You can feel the harshness of this fish's life. You can feel, one could argue, the trauma that the fish has gone through. It's got several hooks in its mouth. She goes on to, to later say, you know, it's been caught and bought off a, a, a different fisherman over and over again. It describes the jaw as an aching jaw as we start to relate more and more to the fish. So having that imaginative relationship with reality that we're seeing, I mean, she's using similes. This is not a textbook, dry, analytical description of a fish. She's using similes. She's using metaphor. She's essentially taking us into the fish's mind later on when she describes his aching jaw, which surely it is. I mean, at that point, you've seen this battered old fish for three quarters of a poem. You have to believe this fish is in considerable discomfort and probably all of these hooks that are embedded in his jaw are not helping matters. But it's Bishop's ability to do that, that imaginative reconstruction of real life infused with pain, you know, infused with a certain amount of suffering and still beautiful. I mean, that's really what's contained also in Sestina because in Sestina, suddenly, magically, everything sort of comes to life. It was to be, says the marble stove. I know what I know, says the almanac. I mean, here we have it. The inanimate world is suddenly infused with this imaginative awakening. It's a very creative take on what the poet and philosopher David White calls the conversational nature of reality. The fact that who we are as people, as individuals, is always bumping up against what is the true nature of the world. Later on in a poem called In the Waiting Room, which is from a later period in the bishop's life, but again, looking back at this time just after her mother has left the scene where she is now living in Worcester, Massachusetts, and she has accompanied her aunt to the dentist's office where she's having some sort of dental procedure and Bishop, and in this case, this is probably the most transparently autobiographical of any of her poems in a certain sense, even though it's still this imaginative engagement with reality. Because what happens here, we have young Bishop sitting in the waiting room, waiting for her aunt, uh, and her aunt is in back having whatever, you know, ghastly dental procedure done, uh, and she looks at a National Geographic, and this National Geographic just opens her up in a way, and we have this sort of cascade of images that is, in fact, about her identity, ultimately. But I felt, she writes in the poem, but I felt, you are an I, you are an Elizabeth, you are one of them, one of these people in the National Geographic, these tribeswomen that are pictured uh, with, with hanging bare breasts, these explorers and jungle reaches in the far corners of the world. And she goes on to say, how? I didn't know any word for it. How unlikely. How had I come to be here, like them, 
and overhear a cry of pain that could have gotten loud and worse, but hadn't. And right there, I think you hear both this engagement with the world, right at the edge of identity, of who am I? Who are you? Who are we in this world together? How is that working? And it's a kind of disbelief that we are in this life, which I think Faulkner writes about it in some of his early novels. It's a fairly common sensation, especially amongst young people and children of, oh my God, I'm me? How come I am me and not this other person? This sort of first layer of awareness, of identity, awareness that there is this edge in the world where you are, but also everything else is. And there is some, you are like all of these silly, foolish people sitting in this waiting room. You are like this overwrought aunt in the back who's having this dental procedure done and is crying out. But then the key turn of that is that this cry of pain could have got loud and worse, but hadn't. It's an acknowledgement that there is still a boundary. That yes, we can all look at things in life, we can all look at the different colors of our experience from traumatic to wonderful and see them as just that, but yet there is a pulling back our experience, the self, doesn't absolutely cover everything. It doesn't color every experience. There is still a boundary. There is a reality here. This is, I think, what allows her both to explore this deeply painful and traumatic experience of losing not just her father, which happens in the remoteness of infancy, but of her mother, who is a caretaker of her at a time, and who was never functionally replaced. I mean, it's not like a kindly grandmother actually steps in in the long run and, and takes care of young Elizabeth Bishop. She's actually pulled away from that experience with her Nova Scotian grandparents. She's pulled into a different experience, a far colder and less maternal experience with her grandparents in Worcester, followed by an outright abusive household in Massachusetts with her uh, mother, sister, and the husband. Um, not that it's all bad. I mean, she's not locked in a closet for years, but there certainly is some traumatic experiences. And the fact that she never quite gets to be taken care of during those years, but she's able to pull up to the edge of it and say, here is where I am. Here is the rest of this stuff. This is not me, I am not this, but I can touch it, I can look at it. Getting back to the line in the Bishop poem, Sestina, time to plant tears, well, what some of these tears grow into is in fact the poetry, where she engages in not only an exploration of who she is, but also of what the world is through these descriptions that she writes. Going back to the fish and the description of that ancient fish being hauled into the water, which she ultimately lets go. She throws it back into the sea, which again is this kind of, I'm bringing it close, I'm bringing it up, we're going into it, and then at the last minute, we're also letting it go. We're letting it go in, back into this other world where it has its own meaning and it's part of its own reality. It's not me. It's not subsumed in my identity. 
And I think for people who have experienced these like these in childhood, that becomes an essential distinction. I am someone to whom these things happened, but I am someone who is not just these things. I think the most ultimately catastrophic from the individual point of view outcomes of this kind of childhood trauma is when people don't see themselves apart from that trauma, when that trauma becomes essentially their identity. So in my view of Elizabeth Bishop, because she has so much trauma, because she's never resolved, she never lands any place where she's really taken care of, you can argue maybe when she goes to Walnut Hill for high school, which is a boarding school in Natick, Massachusetts, where she is sort of taken care of in that way that teenagers are probably best taken care of. She's clothed and fed and you know given a place to live and it's all pretty secure and she develops a network of friendships, which is you know very important to her at the time, obviously. Uh, and she goes on and is able to form relationships with people, form relationships with people at Vassar. After college, she maintains some of those relationships. Some of them are, in fact, love relationships, sexual relationships with other women. Some of them are not. So she learns how to take care of herself. And my take on that is she must have had a very strong sense of who she was. She must have been able to tap into that and stay on that edge of the self and the world, where she could both deal with the world and what the world truly was and also see herself clearly. So that when she's tapping into herself to write these poems, and granted she doesn't churn them out one after another, she's not a fast writer, she's not necessarily a prolific writer, but when she taps into them, there's something so deep and so unique, even when she's under the influence of people like Marion Moore or Robert Lowell, she's still Elizabeth Bishop. She is still recognizable as this particular poet, this poet of precision, this poet of her own experience, but also of the world, independent of what I think or feel about it. So my take on her is she must have had an incredibly strong sense of herself. Now, J.D., on the other hand, has a very different take on that. It also seems like you could make the case that poetry was the place where she could even present a self that was under control. So whatever the truth about Bishop's actual identity was, and I suspect that we're both right in a sense, that there were times that she was really scattered and all over the place and it was very difficult for her to focus herself. And there are times at which she probably felt an intense and very strong connection to who she really was down in the muck and the mire of the deepest part of our person. But regardless, she created this poem in Sestina and many other poems which have as features this chiseled picture of a reality and also have this incredibly imaginative turn in which it's the imagination itself that allows us to turn through what could be a very ugly or hard or harsh reality. It allows us to turn that slightly 
and understand it and create cast over it a net of meaning in which we are no longer alone, in which the poet, the persona, is no longer alone. So in the end, I'm going to turn to another bishop poem from Questions of Travel. Another poem where she does this creative engagement, this kind of turn towards the world and away from the world. Where she's writing from the edge of the self and reality. It's a poem called Filling Station. Filling Station. Oh, but it is dirty. This little filling station, oil-soaked, oil-permeated, to a disturbing overall black translucency. Be careful with that match. Father wears a dirty, oil-soaked monkey suit that cuts him under the arms, and several quick and saucy and greasy sons assist him. It's a family filling station, all quite thoroughly dirty. Do they live in the station? It has a cement porch behind the pumps, and on it a set of crushed and grease-impregnated wickerwork. On the wicker sofa, a dirty dog, quite comfy. Some comic books provide the only note of color, of certain color. They lie upon a big dim doily, draping a tabaret, part of the set, beside a big hirsute begonia. Why the extraneous plant? Why the tabaret? Why, oh, why the doily? Embroidered in daisy stitch with marguerites, I think, and heavy with gray crochet. Somebody embroidered the doily. Somebody waters the plant. Or oils it, maybe. Somebody arranges the rows of cans so that they softly say, so, 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 to high-strung automobiles. Somebody loves us all. So in the end of this poem, what Bishop sees in this otherwise filthy filling station is this act of love, this act of aesthetic, decorative, one might think futile, but yet in this doily, in this you know, in crocheted doily, there is love in that gesture. That's both a kind of observation and it's a bit of imagination. And I think every time we encounter love, every time we love someone, we are in that zone of seeing what's there, truly seeing it and perceiving it, and being imaginatively engaged with a whole set of possibilities of what is and what could be. Yes, we see more in what we love sometimes than is there, but that doesn't mean that it's wrong. That actually means we have a greater degree of choices. We have a greater horizon of possibilities. And for anyone who's been through a hardship in life, anyone who's been through a trauma in life, ultimately, this is what you need. You need a window to open onto greater possibilities, a way to reimagine and knit together all the parts of your life, all the parts of yourself into something that is greater than the whole. That's what Bishop does in her poems. And that's what I hope all of you have occasion to do in your own lives when you need it, 
and to never forget that there are more possibilities out there in the world waiting for you. Thank you very much for listening. This has been the Elizabeth Bishop Podcast. My name is Nate Beyer. I had special help from our guests today, J.D. Scrimger, Shaul Rick Chesson, and Elizabeth Kelly. Most of our bishop poems today were read by Emma Beyer, and I need to say a special thank you to Jeff Kay, who engineered and edited this whole shebang and worked tirelessly on this project. He's just an amazing guy. Jeff, thank you so much. And thank you to everyone for listening. Stay tuned. We'll be back with more podcasts soon. Hey, just wanted to jump back in with a few more thank yous. Uh, first of all, I wanted to thank Professor Lloyd Schwartz, Professor Emeritus from the University of Massachusetts at Boston. He was uh, very helpful in this project, kind of giving a little bit of a shove to get me going and then a little bit of encouragement at the end. Thank you very much for that. Very, very helpful. I also need to acknowledge the music that we use in this, which was from an internet source called Free Music Archive. If you're interested in music for a project or you need some background music for something that you're doing, a slideshow or anything else, you can visit freemusicarchive.org.org and they have thousands and thousands of files that have been uploaded by people around the world who have gone out and created music and uploaded it to the internet, allowing folks just like you and me to use music in projects without having to worry about licensure or paying somebody a ton of money to do it. I highly recommend the site, and a big thank you to everyone who's out there, and these folks are literally all over the world doing this work and giving it away for free on the internet. Thank you. Thank you to all of them. From this hour, you have heard music from Chad Crouch, Lee Rizzaveri, Nico Di Napoli, who did the Chopin piece, Pictures of the Floating World, Scott Holmes, and Sergei Cheremizanov. And thanks again for listening. Bye-bye.